0: Amen. Thank you, Corey, for pointing us in worship to our creator, Jesus Christ. And good morning, church family. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say, Happy New Year. I am excited for this morning. Um, If you're new with us today, my name is Matthew Hurst. I am one of our associate pastors here at First Baptist Watauga, And I oversee our worship ministry, which is absolutely one of my greatest joys on earth. But moreover than that, I am privileged, blessed beyond measure to be married to my wife, Jen. We've only been married two months. Hallelujah. But (laughs) she points me to the Lord daily, and I am blessed. I am thankful for the privilege to be able to preach God's word this New Year's. Eve. Today we will be in Psalm 19, a Psalm of David, and it's one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture. But before we dive into the text, if you've heard me preach before, you know I start every sermon the same way. I like to start by reading Proverbs 3, 5-7, just to help center our hearts and minds on the preached Word of God. So if you hear nothing else today, hear these words. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, where else would we go but to your word. Lord, as we open your word today, Lord, I pray that as I preach that you would empower me to lean completely and utterly upon your spirit. And Lord, for everyone in this room today, Lord, would you shape and mold us by your word and by your spirit. Help us not rely on our own understanding, but in every way, know you. Lord, if there's someone in this room today who doesn't know you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord, that they would hear your word, that they would hear the gospel and repent. Lord God, in all that is said, done, thought this morning, may you receive the glory. It's in your marvelous name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to dive into the word. We're going to be reading Psalm 19. And if you're taking notes this morning, my sermon is titled The Three Books. You'll see why as we dig into the text. But quickly, before we read Psalm 19 together, we have to ask and answer this question. What are the Psalms for? What are the Psalms for? This isn't an exhaustive list, but here are two of the three primary purposes of the Psalms in the time that they were written and for today. This is their purposes. The Psalms teach us the rhythms of worship. The Psalms teach us the rhythms of worship. Essentially, the Psalms teach us how to praise God in every season and every circumstance. The Psalms give us a vocabulary of worship how to describe God, how to describe his works, his creation. And the Psalms teach us a posture to have when we worship God. And second, and this is probably the most important thing about the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to think about God. The Psalms teach us how to think about God. Why is that so important? How you think about God, whether you realize this or not, how you think about God affects everything every aspect of your life. My, one of my professors, Dr. Kreider, he had a saying that he loved to say all the time. He said, your theology shapes your philosophy, which then shapes your methodology. That's a lot of ologies. In simpler terms, how you think about God affects how you think about the world, which then affects how you act in the world. So we're gonna dive into Psalm 19, a Psalm of David. And the Psalms came in a variety of genres, lament, rejoicing, praise, justice. And in this Psalm of David, we're gonna see a quality of David that we don't get to see in other places. We get to see the shepherd David, but also the king who meditated on the word as he was commanded to in Deuteronomy 17. So let us open the word of God to Psalm 19 and let us let the word shape and mold how we worship and shape and mold how we think about God. Psalm 19, for the choir director, Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth. And their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens, he has pitched up a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. And nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant, warned by them and keeping in them there is an abundant reward who perceives his unintentional sins cleanse me from my hidden faults moreover keep your servant from willful sins do not let them rule me that i'll be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight acceptable to you O lord my rock my redeemer what a psalm what a passage of scripture though as we walk through this text i wish i could go through every single verse but there's so much here we could have an entire six week sermon series on this psalm alone so i'm only going to focus on the anchor passages of this text Uh, but first let us look at verse one and as we look i want us to think about these two questions What rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? And how does this passage teach us to think about God? So let us look at verse one, Psalm 19, verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. So first, what rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? What rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? The first thing it teaches us is that creation points us to see God's glory. Creation points us to see God's glory. Note that the text doesn't say the heavens declare glory. Note that the text doesn't say the heavens declare the glory of the heavens. It explicitly asserts the heavens declare the glory of God. You see, in this time period that this psalm was written by David, creation hymns, were not uncommon. In the Mesopotamian region, there are many other religions in that area. And there are many creation hymns that we have found that talk about the sun and the moon that these other religions worshiped as gods. The sun and the moon praising each other, giving themselves glory. And honestly, for the writers who wrote those things, it's not strange that they came to that conclusion. For the heavens are glorious. And from a human perspective, the sun, the moon, and all the stars above are so much larger and older than us, it's not hard to be filled with awe when gazing at that beautiful canvas that is the heavens. However, the heavens are not there to give itself praise. The heavens are there to reveal to us the glory of God. And likewise, as we live our lives, our lives are not for ourselves. Our lives are meant to give glory to God. But not only does creation point us to see God's glory, creation points us to see God's handiwork. Creation points us to see God's handiwork. Look at the second half of verse one. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. No one looks at a delightful piece of art and think that it just appeared out of nowhere for no reason and that it's there for itself. It'd be really odd if I was walking in the hallways and suddenly a Van Gogh just appeared and it's like, oh, that's nice. No, the earth we live in, the heavens, all of it, they didn't simply appear and shine beauty for aesthetics' sake. The earth we live in with its mountains and hills and rolling plains and surging seas did not come forth out of randomness or chance. This world we dwell in, hear me, this world we dwell in was skillfully sculpted, sewn together, saturated with living color. Every detail of creation bound together in a silent volume to testify this truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of creation points to God as creator. This is why scripture tells us in Psalm 14, Only the fool says there is no God. This is why Paul laments in Romans 1. In Romans 1 verse 20, he says, For his invisible attributes that his his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what is made. As a result, people are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the works of his hands. But now let's ask that second question. How does this passage teach us to think about God? Everything in scripture points us to teach us how to think about God. This passage teaches us that God is transcendent. God is transcendent. What does transcendent mean? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines transcendent as exceeding usual limits, surpassing, extending or lying beyond the limits of ordinary experience, beyond the limits of all possible experience and knowledge, being beyond comprehension. Tell me, can we get creation to declare our praises? Perhaps some of the people in this world can sway other men into worshiping them, but creation is never tempted to worship anything else but God. Not only that, but can any of us create worlds, skies, or seas? I can make music, but that is only from the sounds and frequencies that he made. Some of you can build and construct, but that is still from the materials that he crafted. Some of you can paint or draw beautiful things from your own imagination, but it was God who formed your eyes to see beauty. It was God who formed your hands to illustrate art and it was God who formed your mind to ponder all that is wonderful. There is no one like our God. He is beyond comprehension. He is other or as passages in Isaiah say, who has an arm like the Lord's, who has a mind like God's. If you need a dose of humility this morning, I encourage you to later today, go to Job, the book of Job, and reads chapters 38 through 42. God essentially lists out for Job just how much of creation proclaims the work of his hands. And then just bluntly, if you think you're all that in a bag of chips this morning, let me ask you what God asked Job. Where were you when he made the heavens and the earth? But if you need comfort this morning, if you feel broken today, you feel that this world is out of your control, that your life is spinning out in a way that you just can't hold on to, take heart. Surely the God who made the heavens and the earth, who holds all things in his hands, the God who is transcendent can handle your worries and your needs. Cast your cares upon him. Only a transcendent God would be worthy of such praise as creation ascribes. If God were not transcendent, he would be like us mortal, fragile, limited. However, God's power is infinite, eternal. He is full of glory and he clothes the heavens with his majesty, as it says in Psalm 8. So as you think of God and you ponder his nature, remember that he is transcendent. We're now gonna move from the world book into the word book from verse one to verse seven. I wish we could go through all of verses one through six, but there's so much here and I wanna make sure that we address everything. So let us read verses seven through 11 and we're gonna hone in on verse seven. And again, as we read this together, ponder these two questions. What rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? And how does this passage teach us to think about God? Psalm 19. Verses seven through 11. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous, They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them and keeping in them, there is abundant reward. So zooming in on verse seven, verse seven, what rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? This teaches us that while creation points us to see God, the word points us to know him. While creation points us to see God, the word points us to know him. You cannot know God apart from his word, apart from his perfect word. Creation in all its beauty and splendor only provides a glimpse into God, who God is. And to truly understand this rhythm that the word teaches us, we actually have to look at the Hebrew. We're gonna do a Hebrew word study. Let's go. Let's compare verses one to verse seven. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the instruction of the Lord is perfect. That first word where the glory of God, that word is El. It literally means God. But the thing is, in the Hebrew, El, it can refer to the one true God, but also depending on the context, it can refer to foreign gods, foreign deities. It just all depends on the context. So the heavens declare the glory of God, this general idea of who God is. But in verse seven and throughout the rest of the Psalm, it says the instruction of the Lord. And that Hebrew word there is Yahweh. It's his name, his personal divine name, the one he revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter three, verse 14, Yahweh. It's his personal name and this instruction or Torah, as the translation is, this word, this instruction that he has given us is from him. It is not the instruction of Moses. It is not David's instructions. It is the Lord's and it is perfect. If you're here today and you have ever thought to yourself, I wish God would just speak to me. Hear me today. He has spoken to you and he still is. God reveals himself to us and speaks to us over and over in his word, telling us, I am. And guess what? All of creation responds with a cacophony of praise that he is. But how can we trust this word? How can we trust this word? You know how David trusted the word? David's understanding and trust in this instruction in the word of God were grounded in its divine origin. His confidence in ascribing perfection to God's instruction stems from his belief that in God, there is no error. That in God, everything he does is complete and whole. But there's another reason why, God trust, why David trusted God's word to be perfect and true. And this is actually the second rhythm. From the word comes life, from the word Comes life. Examine the first half of verse seven again. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. So I'm so I really like to read. I really enjoy reading. If I'm driving alone, I'm listening to an audiobook. When Jen and I want a relaxing evening at home, we typically read together, or we're watching Downton Abbey. <laughs> but here's the thing. I could read all the works of Socrates and Plato and Descartes and Kant, and I might glean some philosophical insights. I could read all the histories of great generals and warriors who have gone by and learn possible ways of being a better strategist. I could read all the theological works of Charles Spurgeon or Karl Barth or Charles Stanley, or even Billy Graham. And I might learn how to be a better pastor and better theologian, but none of these works will renew my life, save my soul, or wash this dead heart clean apart from the word of God. From the word comes life. Hear how God describes his own word to us. After giving the law of Moses, the Lord said to them in Deuteronomy 32, Take to heart all these words I'm giving you as a warning today so that you may command your children to follow all the words of this law carefully, for they are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. Hear Jesus in the New Testament. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life John chapter six, verse 63, the spirit is the one who gives life, but the flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And hear Peter's cry after Jesus had just finished giving some hard teachings, talking about that he himself is the bread of life and that life only comes from him. And all these disciples and people were leaving Jesus, abandoning him because his teachings were too hard. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are you gonna to leave too? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of everlasting life. My friends, this is why I am so adamant about our services being centered in the word, that we read scripture aloud together. We pattern our services after the scriptures and that our songs that we sing are rooted in the word for we can sing all day until we're blue in the face. But here's the truth. Music won't save you. Music won't get you closer to God. It is only through the word revealed in Jesus Christ by the power of the spirit that we are saved to the glory of God the Father. There are many books and places that you can run to for earthly wisdom And by human accounts, you could live a good and peaceful life with those earthly books and wisdom. But if you're here today wanting to know how your life might be changed as we enter the new year, run to God's word. There and only there will you find life. So let's answer that second question again. How does this passage teach us to think about God? It teaches us that God is eminent, that God is eminent. Not to be mistaken for imminent, which means right after or next or about to happen, imminent with an A, not an I. If God is transcendent, meaning is beyond comprehension, what does eminent mean? Eminent means being within the limits of possible experience or knowledge, or in other words, it's something that is knowable, personal, accessible. The Lord didn't just create the heavens and the earth to leave us to our own devices. No, instead he desires for us to know him personally. How do we know this? Look at the second half of verse seven. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Think, think about this. The God of the infinite universe who made the heavens and the earth, Who is so far above us, was humble enough to give us his testimony. Like a defendant called to the stand in a courtroom, we as his creation had the gall to look to God and say, God, why did you make it like all this? Who do you think you are? And yet God in his power, in his majesty, but also in his humility, gives us his testimony. I am who I am and that great I am gave us 66 books of his story, his testimony, so that we might know him and live, making us inexperienced ones wise. Whereas it says in Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So let's turn to the last three verses of the Psalm. Again, I wish I could go through each section of this. There's so much here, but let's turn to the last three verses of the psalm. And as we move from the word book to the secret book, that is our hearts. Psalm 19 verses 12 through 14. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them then I'll be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? What rhythms of worship does this passage teach us? It teaches us that when we see and know the Lord, he opens our eyes to our own sin. When we see and know that he is the Lord, he opens our eyes to our own sin. When God who made the heavens and the earth reveals himself to us, when we encounter a holy God, his holy light reveals everything that is dark within our hearts. Just as there is nothing that is hidden from the heat of the sun, when we come before God, there is no sin that is hidden in his holy light peer at Psalm 19 verse 12 who perceives his unintentional sins that word perceives comes from the Hebrew word yabin which means to understand to comprehend to grasp something so when David asked who perceives his unintentional sins he is asking who can grasp how much one has sinned who can see the amount of sin that is present It's like taking someone to the beach and asking them, can you tell me, do you perceive how many grains of sand are here? Or it's like telling them to look at the ocean and say, can you tell me just exactly how much water is here in front of us? How many molecules of water in this ocean? That is what David is asking about. He is coming beside us, telling us to look at our sin and say, can you understand how much is here? It is innumerable is like looking at a vast ocean. It's uncountable. How can you perceive it? If our hearts were a book, a secret book that only you and God could read, apart from Christ, every page of that book would be black and unreadable. But there is, and there's nothing that we can do about that. And that is why Isaiah, cries out in Isaiah chapter six, verse five. He's when encountering the Lord of hosts, when God reveals to Isaiah the sin that is on his heart, he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. But when we look at Psalm 19 and if you look at the rest of the word book, there is hope for how does this passage teach us to think about God? It teaches us that only a God who is both transcendent and imminent can cleanse us of our sins. Only a God who is both transcendent and imminent can cleanse us of our sins. Look at verse 13. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. David turned to God in his sinful state to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Why? Because David knew that God was both powerful enough to cleanse him of his sin and David knew that the Lord loved him enough to do so. Think about it. If God were only transcendent, if he were only other, why on earth would he care for us? Why on earth would he care for us? We are so different from him. He is God of the universe and we are but man. But if God were only imminent meaning he loved us immensely, but he was just like us, mortal, fragile, frail. It wouldn't matter how much he loved us. There'd be nothing he could do about our sin, but praise be to God, he is both transcendent and imminent. He is powerful enough to save us and he loved us enough to send us the way. And that way is named Jesus. Matt Chandler has a quote that I absolutely love that really describes this nature of his transcendence and his eminence well. He says that God is both infinitely powerful, but intimately personal. Paul Michael Vaca, he's a former pastor here. He was a youth pastor for many years at a D now a couple of years ago. He said this quote, and I loved it. Our father is the God who is so far above us, but he is also the God, the savior who draws near to us. But here is my absolute favorite quote that describes this nature of God so well. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he had humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, this is why David runs to God in his sinful state. He knew that the only way he might be cleansed was by the power, work and love of his father. David David saw God's glory on display in the book of creation. And David marveled at the love and grace of his father in the Torah, the word, the instruction. And so he trusted God to make the way for his salvation. And we too, like David, should be students of these two books or in the words of Charles Spurgeon, he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book. It's two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. When we become students of these two books, it changes how you see the world around you. I can never look at a sunset or a sunrise the same way again. When I see the sunset and I see the sky turn blood red in all different hues, I can't help but think of my savior on the cross, dying, suffering, taking on the punishment for our peace. When night descends and there's total darkness in the sky, and there's but little light for us to see at night I can't help but think of my savior dead in the tomb descended into darkness But oh when that glorious sun rises in the east I cannot help but think about my god my savior risen alive the death conquering hell defeating son of the living god I can't help it especially this morning I hope y'all saw the sunrise this morning it was glorious And where does that sunrise point to? It points to the glory of God. And if you know the word, if you know the world book and the word book, it will point you to the son of the living God. My church family, as we close this year and we enter into the new year, I implore you to marvel at God's creation and relish in his word, which is altogether righteous. As we get ready to go from here, Let me ask you, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, if you are a believer here today, how do you think about God? It is the most important thing in your walk on this earth is how you think about God. Do you let the world and your experiences affect how you view him? Or do you let the word shape how you view him and worship him? And if you're here today and you would say that you do not know Christ Jesus as Lord, let me ask you this. Do you want to be found acceptable to God? If you were to die today to stand before the maker of heaven and earth, would you be seen cleansed of all unrighteousness and sin? Or would he see your heart as pages stained black? Hear me today. If you want to know God and be cleansed of all sin and rebellion, the only way to know God is through his word and God gave us his word so that we might live. And the best part, the word has a name and his name is Jesus. Jesus, who is the glory of the father revealed to us. For as it says in John three sixteen, if you know these words, I know most of you do, can you say this aloud with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came into this world fully God, fully man, lived, died, and rose again so that we might have life and life abundant. If you're here today and God has revealed to you the weight of your sin, that you see that your sins are uncountable, know this, yes, your sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. God is calling you to believe in his son as the true and living God. As we close, let's read together verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock, my Redeemer. O sinner today, if your heart is a black-paged, sin-filled book, it doesn't matter how many good things you try to put into it, the pages are still black. But if you want God to cleanse your heart, to be forgiven of all unrighteousness, and give you pages where he can write in that book, my child, hear these words, Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. There is no better a word that could be uttered from your mouth than Jesus is Lord. And there is no better meditation of the heart than to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. As Corey comes up to lead us in a time of response, I beg you, if God is calling you to repentance, to repent and believe in the name of Jesus, then I encourage you, come talk with me, come talk with Des, come talk with Victoria, young or old. We wanna come and talk to you, tell, we wanna pray with you, we wanna share the gospel with you, and we would just love to love you and point you to the one who loves you. If God is calling you to ministry or calling you to missions, to devote your life to ministering God's people, come and talk to us, we would love to pray with you. Church family, in response to the preached word of God, I encourage you join in with creation and with all heart, mind, soul, and strength, give glory to God the Father, amen? Let us all stand together and would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Christ the Son and Holy Spirit, may your name be praised on high. For Lord, you made the heavens and the earth, and you are so far above us, but Lord, you gave us your word, you sent us your son so that we might have life. Lord, teach us how to think about you, and Lord, teach us to follow you all the days of our life. Lord God, if there's someone in here who needs to repent and believe in your name, call them out, draw them forward so that they might have life. We love you so much. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.